evening. It is so nice to see you all. Let me try to fix this a little bit. Not quite so not quite so bad. So good to see you. And especially on tonight, because I am gonna talk about my very, very favorite subject. <laughs> Most favorite subject of all. It is about Mudita. You wouldn't know that to know me, that I like Mudita, huh? <laughs> but I do. Um, so I'm going to start with a poem because uh, uh, from Mary Oliver. She's my, my girl. And uh, I think the way she talks about uh, trees is really what Mudita is pointing to. So we'll start here with this kind of energy. She says, can you imagine, for example, what trees do, not only in lightning storms or in the watery dark of a summer's night or under the white nets of winter, but now, 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 or whenever we're not looking, You know, those trees out there, what are they doing? Surely you can't imagine they don't dance from the roots up, wishing to travel a little, not cramped so much as wanting a better view or more sun or just as avidly more shade. Surely you can't imagine they just stand there, loving every minute of it, the birds, Or the emptiness, the dark rings of the year slowly and without a sound thickening, and nothing different, unless the wind, and then only in its own mood, comes to visit. Surely you can't imagine patience and happiness like that. This is strangely what mudita is. And I'm hoping I can talk about this uh, in a way that it becomes clear because I feel this exuberance or big energy when it comes to uh, thinking about happiness and joy. But that is not really the mudita that uh, is going to strengthen our practice with um, like uh, Brahma Vihara. So to me, all the Brahma Viharas have within them Three qualities. They are empty. There is a quality of knowing or understanding, and they are responsive. And so there, there's this emptiness that's attached to the Brahma Viharas that, uh, that we can access, access, but we can't make happen. So friendliness of metta, this kind of kindness or goodwill that comes connected to metta is not something that you or I can make happen, but we can access this empty, universal connection of friendliness. And I can remember being in prisons doing all kinds of mindfulness and nonviolent communication 
And the level of friendliness, meta, and kindness that would be in the circles were the same as the level of kindness that would be in the circles in the communities that I was in. So this access to kindness is not uh, dependent upon how good you are, how your people are, where you come from, how much money you got. It doesn't come from any of that. And there's an empty quality in all of these Brahma Viharas that we can access. And the more empty we become as uh, practitioners, the more access we have to these qualities. Um, and there, there's a knowing to them. I like uh, Upasaka Keys, unentangled knowing. There's a there's a quality of knowing that comes with these um, Brahma-viharas uh, that support us. So it's not just bearing suffering. There is an awareness and wisdom that comes with compassion in our relationship with suffering. So we're not just bearing suffering. We are in relationship with suffering, uh, with compassion. We are in relationship with kindness. Um, and there's a quality of understanding and connection that happens uh, with these Brahma-viharas that's beyond just uh, whether I like you or not. That's why we can do the practice in relation to uh, uh, difficult beings. Uh, take some practice with it, but you can find that as you go through the practices, you can actually start having a connection with a wishing kindness towards beings that are otherwise difficult for you. And that doesn't come because you have all of a sudden decided they are okay. It comes from this... Uh, kind of unentangled knowing or unentangled wisdom that happens with the Brahma Viharas. This is what uh, Thich Nhat Hanh said. Um, he says, uh, love metta. Metta enables us to see things that cannot be seen without metta. Metta enables us to see things that cannot be seen without metta. The eyes of metta are also the eyes of understanding. Metta is the sweet water that springs forth from the source of understanding. To practice looking deeply into metta is the basic medicine for anger, hatred, and fear. So this... this Practicing these qualities of um, of um, the Brahma Viharas, it puts us in a sphere, a space where wisdom of a different type can be cultivated. Um, and then, lastly, they're all very responsive. So, metta is responsive to kindness, meaning there's an urge to move towards kindness, an urge towards friendliness. 
compassion has this urge towards suffering. There's a wanting uh, to get intimate with suffering, not just some kind of uh, poo-pooing it, wishing it would go away, but a urge to actually get intimate and close to it. Um, and as with the equanimity, there's this urge towards acceptance and a, a desire to be with life on life's terms as it is. And for mudita, this urge is towards happiness. It is this, this longing, pull, urge towards happiness. And that's what I want to talk about. This, um, I want to talk about this happiness. Um, mudita is referred to as appreciative joy. It's it's translated as sympathetic joy, joy in the good fortune of another. Um, It's also called unselfish joy. But the real way that I like to think about mudita is this kind of noble, sublime joy. It's a noble joy. And I like the idea that this uh, joy is sublime. It is not the kind of joy we are used to. And that's, that, that, that is what I think the practice of mudita is ultimately pointing us to. Um, there's one sutta where... It's not really a mudita sutta. It's more of a suffering sutta. But there's a moment in the sutta where it's as if you could feel Buddha's mudita in sharing the joy of another. And it comes when he has, he has awakened, he has traveled a long, long ways to find the five practitioners who were practicing with him, who left him to die, basically. But he had this heart opening when he awakened and understood that he could share what he had learned and had attained with his friends. So he began this long trek to go and find them and meet them and tell uh, tell them what he had uh, attained. And so when he gets there, he talks and he shares with them about uh, the Four Noble Truths and the dependent origination. But at the end of the sutta, there is a moment when uh, one of the five, Kadana, he, um, he understands what the Buddha is saying. The Buddha is explaining and it's sort of like you're listening to a Dhamma talk, and it's one of those good Dhamma talks. It's not the boring Dhamma talks that you're like gone somewhere else. It's the Dhamma talk that you're enjoying and you love it. And he could tell, it says in the suttas that the, uh, the other four um, of his friends were elated. They were happy. With, with what the Buddha was saying. But Kadana 
I don't know how to pronounce his name. I think it's Kandana, but uh, Bonte probably knows. But he says he he smiles, and the way that the sutta is written, there's like four different translations, but they all have this moment where the Buddha realized, Kadanda knows, Kadanda knows. It's like, it's one, in one version he goes, Kadanda, do you know? Do you know? It's like, and then there's another one where he goes, Kadanda knows, Kadanda knows. (laughs) It's like, you can feel in that just short little lines that the Buddha has a sense in that moment that he is sharing in the joy that Kadanda understood in that moment, the whole of the Dhamma. In that moment, Buddha could understand the joy that Kadanda had. And in that shared moment, it's not like the other monks didn't have a level of joy. They were all very happy. But in that moment... Buddha was sharing this, the depth of the joy that Kadanda had himself. And that's what mudita is. It's not this kind of sullied happiness that we can do. There's a way that mudita gets kind of sullied because the idea in our ordinary understanding of being happy because of the good fortune of another, it loses its um, it it loses the emptiness at times if it's just about I'm happy because something good happened to you. If it's just about something good happened to you, good for you. That kind of energy, then it loses its quality of noble sublimeness. Um, to me, what this sullying of mudita is doing, it comes from the, our normal human tendencies towards greed, hatred, and delusion. We all have that. And the more we begin to see that, the more we can see how this energy is sullying the possibility that you could have an empty, wise, or um, unentangled knowing in a response that's connected and intertwined with another person's joy on a level that our ordinary understanding cannot connect with. It's said that when the Buddha... Now, this is the part of the story that might go a little further for some of you guys. But, you know, I'm like the Deva woman. I love the Devas, and I love the idea that there's women all around us. So I'm grateful, I must say, that I cannot see them. But I like the idea (laughs) that they're around. I don't know that I would be so steady if I could actually see them. But it's said that when the Buddha had shared this with Kadanda, shared it with his five, and Kadanda understood that in that moment, 
there was this kind of joy that also got shared by the devas. And each realm of devas shared in this joy. Because what it actually is saying, if you think fundamentally beyond something, that you that the Buddha could find the pathway to enlightenment or to awakening, whatever you want to call it. He could find the pathway to actually let go of this heavy burden around his neck of suffering that is just comes with birth. He found this doorway past that. And he was able to articulate it to someone else, and they understood. And their joy got transmitted back to him, and that joy got transmitted up to being after being after being after being. That's what mudita is. It's not the good thing that happened. It's the transmission of joy. And there's something necessary about us learning about the transmission of joy and what happens to us as a people, as a species, if we could learn to transmit and connect with this transmission of joy. So if you think about our ordinary way of being with things, good fortune someone has, we're going to be trapped in greed, hatred, and delusion. It's, it's, it's not any good, bad, or indifferent sign of any one of us. It is the nature of our existence. And so when something good happens to someone, our kind of greed mind, ordinary mind, is like, oh, good for you, good for you. But really we're thinking, what about me? I never get anything good. I remember... Sitting in my sangha, we had this sangha uh, meeting. I I had a sangha in Seattle, and and, and we were sitting around and and uh, just doing a, like a little check-in. And one of the couples said that they won this ten thousand dollars for um, for some article they submitted to AARP, and and they were sharing, and everybody was all happy. And I just remember saying. Thinking, I was saying words like, oh, I'm so happy, but I was thinking, dang, I never got a $10,000 award. I was so bummed about it. And by the time it got around to me, I was like, I cannot believe it, man. I've got the whole uh, energy of, it's more like greed. It's the wishing you had that. Whatever goodness someone has, you wish you had it. And I was sharing how, how greedy my energy was around just hearing the fact that someone got an award and I wanted it. And so the, this, is, this is not to be poo-pooed. It's not to be like, oh, not guilt or shame or that kind of energy. You know, it's, it's better to just acknowledge it because it is the nature of what's called the near enemy of mudita because it feels so much like 
oh, I'm happy for you, but there's an edge to it, and it's not quite uh, connecting. It's not empty. It's entangled, and there's a wanting uh, instead for yourself. And that wanting keeps us from actually experiencing the joy. Instead of me experiencing the joy from that couple, I was experiencing my own regret or sadness that I didn't have the award. And that takes away from this noble, uh, sublime energy that we can access. Um, So the flip side of that, though, is the aversion side. That's the side that's more on that resentment, jealousy, envy. It's a much more harsher kind of energy. And most of us rarely want to admit that we're on that aversive side. But since I am an aversive person, I spend a lot of time over there too. So there's this kind of, you hear about someone's good fortune And instead of actually feeling the joy of it, you kind of diminish it. You can criticize it. It's not really that much. It's not all that. And so I don't know why they're making such a big deal about it. (laughs) It's like you just, you're kind of making the, 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 the act, whatever good fortune they got, you're kind of um, overwhelmed with kind of the um, negativity around it. There's that, this, uh, this way in which we either uh, make it more than it is, like, uh, oh, it's this, it's this, then everything great is going to happen for you. Now your whole life has changed. Everything's going to be great for you. Lucky you. And we make it much bigger or we diminish it completely like it's nothing. And, 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 and somehow as practitioners, joy, we need joy that I, I'm going to talk about in just a minute. We need to access joy. And we need to access the joy of another in order for us to move through this world. And so if we don't learn how to kind of find our way in the middle, because this delusion is like not seeing this, not seeing our greed around another's good fortune or our aversion around another's good fortune. And, in, and instead, we just look for our own kind of good fortune and joy. And that's where our joy comes from, is from our own good fortune, our own kind of whatever good happens to me, I got joy. And that's where it comes from. But if you are anything like me, you've used it up. <laughs> You've probably borrowed against your joy for next year. <laughs> you are not getting any next year. So there's a way <laughs> in which you could think about it. We, we only have a limited number of good things that happen to us. If joy is connected to having some good fortune, we all have a limited amount of good fortune that's going to happen. It's just natural with the ebb and flow of life. 
So let's just say we only get two good things happening in a year. Two. I've used up my two, and I've used up next year's two. <laughs> it's just this way in which the mind can grab after anything it can see as the possibility of something good happening to us. But once you use it up, you pretty much are kind of a, a void of good things coming your way for the rest of the year. <laughs> it's miserable, isn't it? Just the thought of that. You've used it up. You know, you got a call on January 2nd that said, yeah, you know, you got the job. It's like, yay! You don't know who you're going to work with. You're going to find that out. <laughs> you're going to find that part out in March. <laughs> but And because you got the job, you moved into this apartment. That's it. You're done for it. So the rest of the year is going to be pretty miserable. Unless you can find a different way of accessing joy. You have to find this, this, this joy has to come from something other than something good happening to you. This is, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm joking about it, but really, this is the way we imagine life. We go from good thing to good thing to good thing. And we only look at what is good happening to our life. And that's how we gauge whether our life is going good. And if we don't see any good going on, we begin to quickly think our life is a mess. And that is not in keeping with the Brahma Viharas. It is not in keeping with Mudita. We are practicing borrowing the joy of another So what that means is, if something good happens to me, and I share it with you, you will feel that joy too. And if something good were to happen to all of us, and we had the capacity to share it with each other, now, almost every day of the year, you would have joy. There's no way you cannot wake up in the morning experiencing joy because there are billions of people with their two joys every year. (laughs) It is unbelievable the amount of joy that you could experience. And it's quite simple. It is not even you got to have a job or apartment or everything has to work out for you. I remember teaching a retreat online. It was during the pandemic and right after it started and Joseph and me and Kamala and um, uh, Pascal were going to do this retreat at Spirit Rock. And then when the pandemic came, uh, Joseph decided we would do it online. So everybody agreed. And my job was to do the Brahma Viharas every day. So when the joy day came, I started talking about mudita, and I told everybody, wait, I gotta first tell you, this was not a Zoom meeting, which I would have loved. This was a webinar. So I was looking at my computer, and I had to put my paper up. 
Otherwise, I would be looking at me, telling me about joy. So I put the paper up so I wouldn't see me and pretended like I was talking to all these people. There was something like 800 people online, not to hear me, to hear Joseph and Kamala, Pascal. But nonetheless, I was riding in on the mudita. (laughs) (laughs) And so I told this, I gave this Dhamma talk about mudita, and I said, you got to borrow another person's joy. I said, because if we don't, we have to learn how to borrow joy. Instead of thinking of mudita as, I just got joy for another person's good fortune, think of it as borrowing their joy. We can do that. If I were to start crying, you would feel sad. It's very easy as humans for us to intersect with the emotional energies of other beings, other uh, animals, other humans. We're very connected in that way. And so what Mudita is proposing is that we borrow another's joy. So I was telling everyone online, if you don't have any joy, don't worry about it. Borrow mine. I have plenty. You can have as much as you want. Just think about me, and there, you can have your joy. And so I get this email the next day from someone in Germany. And this person says, I was so miserable. I've been so miserable. This is during the pandemic. And they lost somebody. And they just have been so sad and overwhelmed, and they couldn't find anything to get happy about. And it's been like two, three months they had been miserable. And so they said that they thought about me. And they said, I'm going to borrow that Tuary person's joy. They started thinking about me talking and laughing. And there were times I was uh, trying to give my Dhamma talk and my three-year-old granddaughter would come wandering in. I'm trying to scoot her out and... So he thought about me, and he started feeling that joy. And he said in this email, I'm saying he, but I really should say they, because I can't remember, uh, you know, the gender of the person. But they said that um, they noticed themselves whistling. They hadn't whistled in years. And they just noticed that they were walking around the house whistling, And they could feel this kind of upbeat energy. It's not not my good fortune. It's the joy that I experience because of that good fortune that he is connected to or they are connected to. And I then told yogis, like I'm telling you, at retreats, and you can feel their joy. So I told them that happened in 2020, which was like, what, three years ago, in a time when it was very difficult for us. And yet the joy that I felt from that email is alive today. It never goes away. You can just, I can just think of it and it's there. We can just think of the smiles or the joy from someone, and boom, that joy is right there. We can remember. So what we're doing 
is cultivating a willingness to find and connect with joy. So I want to tell you why this is so important. Um, there's a person, Maya Angelou. She, she's like a po- poet laureate. She, she's dead now, but, you know, she's one of our great poets, this African-American woman, civil rights poet. And she writes poetry and has, she says things with such a fierceness that uh, many African-Americans who wrote and uh, existed during the civil rights movement for, for all of us, uh, the way they express power comes through love and compassion. And this is a quote that she uh, said once. She said, love is that condition in the human spirit so profound that it empowers us to develop courage. So I'm going to change this here. This could be metta through mudita. Mudita is that condition in the human spirit so profound that it empowers us to develop courage, to trust that courage and build bridges with it, to trust those bridges and cross over them so we can attempt to reach each other. You see, we cannot, in our ordinary understanding in life, with all of its uh, biases and prejudices and misbeliefs and mistrust and aversion and greed, and I don't like that, and I don't know about those people, and all of that history we have, we can't cross over to the other side just because our natural, ordinary mind won't let us. Like, your natural, ordinary mind won't let you drink tea if you put sugar in it and you don't like sugar in it. It won't let me drink tea without sugar. I've tried. I can sip it. But once I taste that bitterness, that's it. I'm not drinking it. So this this quality of metta, this quality of metta is empty of our projections and biases and prejudices and all the mess we get from childhood. Not our fault, just the stuff we carry along with us, just this long baggage of stuff. It's not entangled in that. It's this empty, unentangled knowing that's responsive to just the energy of happiness. And from that, we can start building these bridges to actually move through. I actually believe that's what happened in the African-American civil rights movement. This is what I think happened. When, when I, when, if you read about the state of the country for African Americans, so for those of you that aren't from America, I just want to give you a li- just a box here, kind of what it was like to be black in America. It was very limiting. There were all these rules about how you could be. And your parents, my parents, 
raised us with this very strict line about no crossing these lines. There were areas in Seattle where I grew up you did not even go to. You could go just to the University of Washington and no further. And still, to this day, there are black families who will not move into an apartment or look for any place north of the University of Washington. And there are still white people who think, I am not moving south of the University of Washington. I'd be moving into the ghetto. So there's a, there's a realness about the limitations that we kind of lived with. There's no way I would be sitting here giving a Dhamma talk to a room that's primarily white. It's not happening like that. I could have some talks. They begin to happen during the civil rights movement. But before that civil rights movement, we were basically boxed in to a world that was relegated to this kind of very articulated second-class citizenry. That's it. So everything, if I went to a restaurant, I would have had to go to the back of the restaurant and hope they would offer me something to eat. And it may or may not be in a condition that I would even want to eat it. There's no, like, finding I can't just go to a hotel, motel. You can't just go rent an apartment. The whole world was quite different. And the the point that I want to make here is it was embedded into the culture. So it's not like this was temporary thinking. This was in the South pretty bad because there were so many uh, African Americans that lived in the South. But it was equally difficult in the North. It was pretty much on the West and the, and the East. So this idea that this discriminatory way of relating to African Americans was absolute in the country. Absolute. And it was accepted by the white culture. This is the way it is. So I don't, I'm not going to be mean. I'm not going to be unfair. But this is the way it is. So if you think about it, In order for us to get to where we are now, all of us feeling completely in this kind of intertwined respect for one another, in order for us to get there, it took a heavy lift, a heavy lift, and much of the pushback against all peoples that were protesting and marching was pretty significant. I mean, the, some of the pictures are kind of horrific when you think about what they had to go through. And yet they did. All this peaceful kind of absoluteness that people did. Where do you think they got that energy from? Where do you think they got the energy to like stand up against the backdrop of very absolute racism and violence. It's kind of weird, but they got it from joy. Joy. They would go to church and sing to the rafters this songs, not of uh, uh, loneliness and isolation and oh, woe is me, but happy day 
I mean, if any of you guys have ever heard black gospel, it is not the woe is me kind of energy. It is way up there. Happy music. It's, it is enlivened music. And you're so interconnected that that joy brings you to a point where there is nothing out there beyond that you cannot take on. That when we get too trapped in suffering, we can get heavy and weary and not sure we can make it. But this joy of mudita, it enlivens us. It brings us up to the core and we, our spirits get lifted. And so there's this way in which the, a lot of the songs that were sung during the civil rights movement, the music... Um, even the music uh, of uh, Motown and a lot of black uh, R&B, the rhythm and blues, that music was so uplifting that uh, it took us into different places. I believe to this day that's why the Beatles and um, Rolling Stones were so popular back then because their music was so upbeat, 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 upbeat. And they created a level of joy that the rest of the world, young people in the world, could feel. So in a way, when I think about the times we're in right now, I can't imagine how we're going to face everything we have to face if we're only talking about the misery level of what we have to deal with. If we're only talking about fear and treachery and difficulty and it's all for not fear and anger and all of that, that is not going to help us take on what we have to take on. It's not going to help us do what we need to do. And I don't know when this happened to me. I can't remember. I just remember kind of Waking up one morning, and my, I've always been kind of a happy person, but my happiness was different. I could see happiness everywhere. I saw it constantly. I saw it everywhere. It just seemed like everybody was happy. And so even though I live in a world where there's a lot of difficulty, I live in a world that is full of joy. It is overwhelmingly full of joy. And so if you live in a world that's overwhelmingly full of joy, you also live in a world where the possibility of liberation, greatness, goodness is all right there with you. But if you live in a world where you think the world is coming apart, falling apart, nothing's going to work which is the way it was for African-Americans for years. Somebody had to step in and say, it's not going to stay like this. There is something better on the other side of this. And that energy is what gets us over to this uh, a different world. It's not to say that the world now is, is uh, all great and rosy. 
we're kind of like all stuck in the suffering together now. At least when we were separated, I could at least be over on this side and say, woo, look at what's happening to those people. But now we're kind of all mixed up in the pot. And so there's a way in which we, not just this African-American tradition to sing to the rafters when things are difficult, but in this practice, as practitioners who are getting up close and personal with suffering, we have to be willing to cultivate mudita. We have to be willing to find a way to connect with the joy of another because we will not have enough joy in our own lives to hold us and sustain us through what we are going to have to deal with. We are going to have to learn to borrow other people's joy in order to cultivate enough of it that we can get up every day and, and um, even continue to practice towards liberation. So the way you do this, this borrowing, well, first let me read one little thing from, from uh, my, this, my, my great book. This is a poem by uh, Julie Codwadler Stobbs called Blackbirds. This is sort of what I'm pointing to. She says, I am 52 years old and have spent truly the better part of my life out of doors. But yesterday I heard a new sound above my head, a rustling, ruffling quietness in the spring air. And when I turned my face upward, I saw a flock of blackbirds rounding a curve I didn't know was there. And the sound was simply all those wings, all those feathers against air, against gravity, and such a beautiful whining. The whole flock taking a long, wide turn as if one body and one mind. How do they do that? If we lived only in human society, what a puny existence that would be. But instead, we live and move and have our being here in this curving and soaring world that's not our own. So that when mercy and tenderness triumph in our lives and when even more rarely we unite and move together towards a common good, we can think to ourselves, ah, yes, this is how it's meant to be. This is what I think Mudita does for us. It allows us to get out of our puny existence and move into a world that's soaring, full of joy and happiness. So how I do it. I begin to realize, so I took a vow of celibacy. Let me just back up a moment. I took a vow of celibacy when I was like, I don't know, 35 years old. And I always thought that I was going to live in this kind of a lonely existence, but I don't. I live beautiful. I mean, I love 
romance. So I watch romantic comedies all the time. I just, that, that's all I do is look for romantic comedies. And I have some, there's some doozies out there that are really good. And so one day in my mudita practice, I decided to imagine the moment that someone was asking their partner to marry them. And that partner always says yes, because this is mudita. So they always say yes. And there's always this uproar of love and connection. And it's just so happy. It's so romantic. It's so mushy. It's so wonderful. But to me, it is joyous. It is belief. And there will never be a day when someone is not going to ask someone to marry them. There will never be a day. As long as there are human beings, there will be love. I have watched little kids who are hilarious, especially when they think they're telling you a joke that doesn't make any sense. (laughs) And you have to laugh anyway. Or babies, if you do one little thing and they get the giggles and they can't stop laughing, you keep just doing it, touching them, and they just crack up. I mean, there's so much momentum towards joy, so much of it, so much of it. You have to think about what really brings you joy, not... um, Uh, It does not bring me joy that someone else has a great job. Don't think on that. That's not your mudita. (laughs) If you like gardeners, think on that. If you like gardening. But here's the sublime nobility of it. Let's say you can't garden anymore. But you love gardening. You love to see the hard work that gardeners have done and made their yard so beautiful. Think on that. Remember that joy. Not the misery of I can't do it, but the joy you know they are feeling when their garden is set. When the plants are all in their little rows and everything looks nice. And we've trimmed the last bit of weeds off and everything is great. That joy is what you're thinking of because you know it. And you can connect with it. So I begin to think on all these things that I truly find joy with. And then I would send this kind of mudita, this graciousness, out into the world for all those who are experiencing that. All those, all those people all over the world, as far away as I could imagine. It didn't matter to me. I would sit in my mudita and imagine people in China, in Africa, Europe. It didn't matter. Australia, it doesn't matter. Just imagine people having babies, falling in love, being happy in this energy of possibility. Something better is out there. And that energy is contagious. It's, it is, um, it 
not easy to hold the possibility in a world that's so difficult. It's not easy to hold the possibility. And this might be a little woo-woo for some of you guys. So the mystic in me is going to just stretch it out beyond your understanding. We got blackbirds roaming around in here. There are people who are suffering in the greatest amount of pain. Right there. They are in dire straits here in the world. And their dire straits, they cannot generate mudita for themselves. They cannot generate it because they, they're overwhelmed with their circumstances. We're not in those circumstances. So who else but us to send out waves and waves and waves of mudita? Because if we don't send it out for them to reach up and grab it, they will lose their capacity to believe that there's going to be a better way. So that it's like, it's not just sending kindness to our loved ones, but we, I just believe in the power of our collective mind states that as we start practicing this sense of joy and uplift, and we actually send joy out into the world, then people who are in real need of it, they will be able to access it. And it will turn this energy. You know how like in football games, basketball games, you can tell when the energy is shifting. It looks like your team is losing. I don't even watch the sports, but I can tell the room is all quiet. Everybody's all, no, oh, I can't believe it's so stupid. Why did you do that? And there's all this negative. And then something happens, and the energy begins to turn. Just one play, and all of a sudden, I'm saying all the fans across the whole world that's watching that game, their energies begin to coalesce. And all that energy begins to shift towards that game. And you can feel the momentum changing in the game. So this is what we're doing here. We are changing momentum. We are not... Mudita is our capacity to find the capacity to change the momentum of all of that hate and anger that's out there. So I want to leave you with one last quote from James Baldwin, who's like another one of these. Uh, he was writing way before the Civil Rights Movement, but he got really, really famous during the Civil Rights Movement. He's a famous writer, activist. and He says, uh, the longer I live, the more deeply I learn that love, whether we call it friendship or family or romance, is the work of mirroring and magnifying each other's light. Gentle work, steadfast work, life-saving work in those moments when life and shame and sorrow obstruct our own light 
from our view. But there is still a clear-eyed, loving person to beam it back. In our best moments, we are that person for another. Let's sit a moment here. So I want to read this again and put Mudita in here. So the longer I live, the more deeply I learn that Mudita is the work of mirroring and magnifying each other's joy. Gentle work, steadfast work, life-saving work in those moments when life and shame and sorrow obstruct our own joy from our view. But there is still a clear-eyed, loving person to beam it back. In our best moments, we are that person for another. Thank you so much for your kind attention. We're going to have a late night here um, starting at 10, but we're going to go a little shorter. We're just going to go 10 to 10.30, 30-minute walk, 30-minute sit, 30-minute walk. So we'll end at 11.30 tonight. So hope you'll join us. to have the chanting though. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.